0: Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antinomocósica 20 valente vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, Llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita prevnar20enespañol.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre prevnar20. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42. pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en Español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, August 24th, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Kara Santa Maria. And this week I want to thank our top patrons, those who have pledged a you know significant amount of support to keep Talk Nerdy free for everyone else. They include June Sapara, Christopher Pitts, Michael Gaucher, Mary Neva, Pasquale Gelati, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, David J.E. Smith, Charles Payette, and Brian Holden. Thank you all so, so very much. All right, now let's dive into the show. This is a really, really good one, you guys. I had the opportunity to sit down with Maria Konnikova. You may remember her from a previous episode. I think just one, maybe two. I think just one. Honestly, I could look that up, but doesn't really matter, does it? Um, We've spoken with her before on Talk Nerdy about her previous books. Um, She wrote about. Uh, really a lot about con artists and kind of about human psychology. She wrote The Confidence Game and Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. And that's what we would have spoken about on our previous episodes. She actually um, studied psychology academically and then went on to become, you know, just a really celebrated science writer across several different science platforms. But more recently, As she was researching for her newest book, she actually became a a professional poker player sort of accidentally. She's won over $300,000 in tournament earnings. And she's going to share with us today a lot of the stuff that she learned in um trying to understand poker so her new book is called the biggest bluff how i learned to pay attention master myself and win guys this is a really really fun one so without any further ado here she is dr maria konnikova maria
2: thank you so much for joining me today thank you so much it's always a pleasure and i'm thrilled to be back (laughs)
1: Okay, so things are very different now for so many reasons, but probably the biggest reason is that your most recent book not only was a research project, but it also involved a pretty lifestyle change. And even right now, you are in the midst of um, playing poker, aren't you? Yes.
2: I mean, last time you and I did this, um, if you had told me, by the way, Maria, next time we speak, um, you will have become for a period of a few years a professional poker player. Um, I would have just laughed and said, that's such a great joke. Um, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder where you came up with it because I'm someone who just didn't care about cards, hate casinos. You know, this is totally not me. And yet, yes, here we are. I embarked on this new project for for a book, um, and it was supposed to be just a year, just immersing myself in this world of poker because I was interested in luck, not because I was interested in poker. And ended up just becoming something totally different, taking on a life of its own, um, and here we are, you know, three years later, and I'm talking to you, not from my lovely apartment in New York, but from an Airbnb rental in New Jersey, because I'm here to play the World Series of Poker online. And because live events are not happening right now, for obvious reason. And you can't play in New York, but you can play in New Jersey, who could have ever guessed?
1: <laughs> it's amazing. You know, last time you were on the show, we I think we were talking about the Confidence Game. Um your book before the Confidence Game was Mastermind, and one of the themes of these um these first two books of yours was in in many ways I think connected to uh your work as a science journalist but also your academic career um in psychology. And, you know, what we talked about the last time we were together, and I think the last time I saw you also um, was probably at some skeptic convention somewhere, Um, the big theme of what you were talking about was this idea of, like, the con, like, people conning other people, what it means to be a con artist, and, like, what the psychology behind that is. I remember we talked quite a bit about Donald Trump before he won. (laughs) Oh, it was a different time. So so did that, that idea evolve into uh, the poker stuff? You know, I, I play poker a lot, too. So I'm super excited to talk to you about it. I'm not as good as you are. Um, but I'm very excited to talk to you about it. And of course, one of the biggest parts of poker is the psychology behind poker. It's not just the numbers. It's not just the skill. Is that where your interest kind of started to evolve? You know, I, it would be so easy for me to say
2: yes, because in retrospect, the connections are so obvious, but no, um, it was, it, it's only in retrospect that the the dots connect, um, <laughs> in the moment they, they didn't connect at all. And I actually, I came to poker from a very, very different angle. So the confidence game had come out and, you know, everything was lovely. And then I actually went through a really rough patch of of bad personal luck um, in my life. I got very sick um, with some really strange autoimmune condition that to this day has not been diagnosed. It just went away and you know, knock on wood, um, it's not going to come back because for stretches of time, I couldn't leave the apartment because my skin became allergic to everything. And anything uh. that touched it, basically I would just break out in these horrible hives and it was painful and they were all over my body and face and neck and everything. Um, and so I was trying to get this diagnosed and it wasn't happening. My grandmother died at, the same, at around the same time in a freak accident. Um, not because she was sick just slipped in the night hit her head didn't wake up Um, multiple people in my family lost their jobs just and this this is just we're talking about like a few months stretch and it just it made me realize that luck plays such a powerful role in our lives and we just take it for granted when it's on our side when it's actually going for us and then the only time when we really stop and acknowledge it is when it goes against us, when all of a sudden things don't go our way, when we lose that good luck. And I just became really obsessed with this idea and, you know, I was spending a lot of time at home. I had lots of, lots of time on my hands. So I w- started reading a lot and decided, you know, I want to write about luck for my next book. I want to explore this. I want to explore the limits of our control, how we can learn to tell the difference between skill and chance, between what we control and what we don't. And I didn't know how to, how to find a way into the topic. And, what the story was, I just had this big philosophical query. And someone suggested um, that I look into game theory, because they said, oh, it's, it's a good framework for looking at chance. So I picked up the theory of games, which is the foundational text of game theory, and realized that one of its authors, John von Neumann, was a poker player. And not only was he a poker player, but poker inspired game theory. And what he wrote about the game really caught my eye. He said that real life consists of bluffing, of little tactics of deception, of figuring out what does this man think I mean to do. And that is what games are about in my theory. And that is what poker is about. So he went on to say that poker is the perfect model for strategic decision-making in life because it's a game of incomplete information. There are things I know, things you know, things we both know. We all have to make the best decision we can knowing that we don't know everything, knowing that all the information isn't out there, knowing that we have to just try to do the best we can. And ultimately it's going to be uncertain and you can't control the cards, but you can do your best. And what you can do is Get your money in as a favorite. Try to work the odds in your favor. And von Neumann thought that if you could find a way to solve poker, to solve No Limit Texas Hold'em, which is the variant he played and the variant I ended up playing – then you'd have just the key to how to approach decisions in life. He thought it might even help prevent nuclear war. And by the way, von Neumann wasn't just the father of game theory. This is also one of the people who created the hydrogen bomb um, and the computer. So so he knew what he was talking about. He was involved in the highest level negotiations. This really intrigued me. And I thought, what is this poker thing? Let me read about it. And Something clicked when I started reading about poker. I thought, this might be it. Why don't I learn this game? Why don't I get someone really, really good to teach me? You know, a year seems good. A year is always a good length for a book. You know, my year of this, my year of that works well, sells copies, nice, (laughs) let's do it. (laughs) Um, And um, let me actually use poker as a way to explore this question of skill versus chance. Um, So that was my original introduction to the game. Not because I thought, that there was any affinity to con artists, even though there is, obviously, not because I really was thinking about the fact that, you know, hey, your your PhD in psychology is on decision making under uncertainty and risky situations. (laughs) No, I wasn't thinking about any of that. It was really that skill versus chance question that that propelled me into it.
1: Oh, I love that so much. And I mean, that's something I think that has always drawn me to the game of poker. I've never taken the time. I mean, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, um, and I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight poker books other than yours. Now I'm like, where do I put your book? Is it Does it go with my poker books? Does it go with my psychology book? Uh, but yeah, so I know that I've read a bit about like poker theory in the past, but I've never... You know, really trained with somebody. I tend to prefer home games over over games in card rooms. I've definitely never, um, uh, want to bought in, uh, want to buy into the World Series. Oh my gosh. Um, but there is something that really draws me to poker because. Um, I think it speaks to sort of my skeptical tendency. So not just this conversation about skill and luck and sort of what combination of two goes into sort of the macro decision-making during the game, but also the sort of, or sorry, micro decision-making, but also the sort of macro conversation about how to, in the long-term, win money playing poker. I've always been really intrigued by this idea of simply... um, uh, minimizing your losses and maximizing your gains. Like you're always going to lose sometimes. And, and hopefully if you're halfway decent, you're always going to win sometimes. So how can you make sure that when you win, you win the most? And when you lose, you lose the least. And that was what always really drew me into the game.
2: Yeah. And I think that that, I mean, it, it goes, it goes to show your, your background and the fact that you are a skeptic and that you have this very thinking pursuit. Um, because what Eric Seidel, who, who became my coach taught me is that you can't play poker to have your goal be winning money because you can't control that. That's the outcome. Right. Your goal has to be, how do I make the best Decision possible. That's what you control. That's the process. And then if that's your goal, and if you work on optimizing your decision process and on learning how do I make the best decisions, then over the long term, you will make money. But you can't, if your goal is always to make money, you're going to make mistakes because your motivation is wrong. You're too outcome focused. And so you're going to, let that seep in to your decision process, which is bad, because that shouldn't be part of your decision process. And over the long term, you're going to lose money. And so what he what he really taught me is that you can't you have to think about what is within you to actually change, which is how you think about things, how you approach things, your reactions, your actions, your emotions, your logic, your thought process, that's what you should be focusing on. And then the money will come because in the short term, in the immediate term, I mean, variance only evens out over over volume. That's the that's right. cure to variance. And in the immediate term, in one hand, one game, one tournament, anyone can win. Anything can happen. It doesn't make you a brilliant player if you win a lot of money, and it doesn't make you a terrible player if you lose a lot of money, but over... 10, 100, 1,000 samples, all of a sudden, the skilled player is going to take the money away from the unskilled player. So your goal should be how do I become the skilled player? What's the difference between the skilled player and the unskilled player? Well, the difference is thought process, the difference is analysis, the difference is how can I be the more logical, the more rational person, the person who really knows how to pick apart the nodes of a decision and figure out at every given point, okay, how do I optimize this? And yes, here, I think what you said, you know, how do I make the most with my good hands and lose the least with my bad hands? Um, and that's that's a huge part of it you just you want to put yourself in a position to win as often as you can but that doesn't mean you're actually going to win and so one of the other crucial lessons that i think we'd all do well to to take away from from the poker table is play within your bankroll play within the money that you actually you know where you can actually see the long term because a lot of people they just they go broke because they never get to see the long term and that's a mistake i think people make in life all the time
1: Absolutely. I mean, that reminds me of two big kind of features that I find really attractive about poker and that I've kind of noticed over the years that I've been playing are that, one, the really serious players or the people who seem to have a more, maybe I should say, holistic grasp of the game tend to keep records like They tend to have a spreadsheet where they write down most of the games that they play. Not always, but that really helped me to see how often was I in the money, when I was in the money, how much money was I making, when I wasn't, how much was I losing, so that I could see on the long term if I was up or if I was down. Um, and what was the other one? It was in my head just one second ago, but I'm not <laughs> fully coffeeed yet. See, uh, that's another important thing. Don't play poker when you've first woken up in the morning. No, no. Um, I think it's the important other thing by the way yeah. <laughs> no it totally
2: is don't don't underestimate it Eric told me so many things, you know, you you should only play when you're feeling your best self. I mean, unless right. unless you can't avoid it, um, because sometimes, you know, sometimes you need to play because you're in a multi-day tournament. But he said, never play off a plane. Never play when you're jet lagged. There's so many things that you need to take into account. So you joke about not being fully caffeinated. It's important. You want to, right. ma- one of the things about maximizing your edge is knowing yourself well enough to know how you're feeling. There's something that are always says, which is, we'll see how I'm feeling in the morning when I ask him if he's playing something. And he means Mm -hmm. it. He will forego huge events when he doesn't feel that he's 100%. um, Because to him, it's just not worth it. And yes, keeping spreadsheets is so insanely important. You have to keep track of everything. Because otherwise, how are you going to have an objective measure of what's going on? It's so easy to be subjective about yourself. I even I went through a period when I was really not doing well and not cashing in any tournaments. So I took it up a level um, and started tracking all of my hands and tra- oh, wow. started started tracking all of my all in confrontations so that I could actually calculate: Am I where am I running with uh, with respect to variance? And this is obviously, I mean, it's still flawed, but it's better than nothing and. I was able to see, oh, I'm actually losing more than 50% of flips. I'm on the bad side of variance right now. And that gave me confidence. That made me able to play better because I thought, okay, you know, it's not like I've suddenly regressed and I'm now playing horribly. Um, It's that right now I'm just not, Winning in those spots um, at the correct "quote unquote" percentage, because there is no correct percentage. There, that percentage only matters over the long term. In the short term, you know, the percentages don't care about you. They don't care whether you're running bad or running good. They they only care about long term.
1: Right, right. I and as you were saying, what you were saying, it reminded me of my other point because you actually use the word which was that i am a tournament player i very much enjoy playing tournaments not only do i enjoy the additional i think s- strategy that's involved it also goes back to an earlier point you made which is like to only kind of play within your comfortable buy in and i find that in cash games people sometimes tend to play Much looser, and they tend to, you know, some very smart poker players play cash games and clean up. But amongst friendly games, I find that cash games allow people to dig in a way that I'm not completely comfortable with. Whereas tournaments require a different, you know, the long game is different than the short game. Heads up is completely different than when you're sitting with eight people at the table. And so there's a change in strategy as your hands become more valuable later in the game. And I find that really, really intriguing.
2: Likewise, likewise. Um, I, when I just started learning the game, I had A question posed to me, which I didn't even realize was a question, which was, are you going to play tournaments or cash? Mm-hmm. I don't even know that there was a difference but but there is and for people listening who don't play poker so cash games are what you probably are thinking about when you think of poker because in most movies that's what you're seeing so everyone buys in for certain for however much they want and every chip is worth money every chip is actually has a cash value of however much you paid for it so all those James Bond ma- movies you know they're they're playing cash games and rounders they're playing cash games um, and you you can you can get up and walk away anytime you want, and you can also reload and ask for more chips anytime you want. Um, and so and so you're actually playing for the little things on the table, whereas in a tournament um, the chips have no cash value whatsoever. They're just a way of keeping score. And whereas in a cash game you can walk away whenever you want. In a tournament. You you're basically you're there, and you buy in. Let's say you buy in for a hundred dollars, and let's say a hundred people bought in. Well, ninety percent, ninety of those people, more, more or fewer, depending on the exact tournament, but ninety is about is about right. Are going to walk away with zero because the tournament only pays ten percent of the field, let's say, and so person eleven who is out of the tournament is going to be down. And person 10 is going to win, let's say 110 or 120, whatever it is. And the higher you get, the more money you win. And so you actually you have to last a lot longer and it becomes a very different game. So once, right once I... Those multi-day games. Yes, When, when yes. they're big tournaments. Yeah. Exactly. So the the big tournament that... I mean, I, I guess this is kind of a spoiler alert for the book, but not really because it was in the news. Um, the big tournament that I ended up winning was a four-day tournament. So so by the end, you're exhausted um, and yeah. you've been playing wow. for, for a very, very long time. And... Yeah. So it's a very different dynamic. So when I had to choose which one am I going to play, um, it it became very clear right away that it was going to be tournaments because I was looking for an analogy for life and tournament poker has a beginning, a middle and an end. It has a dynamic. It has, it has different parts. There are different strategies at different times. Um, and you can't rebuy and that is a much, I mean, there are rebuy tournaments, but at some point there's no
1: more, there are no more rebuys. Usually it's in the earlier rounds or something, but there's a cutoff. Yeah.
2: Exactly, and so that's actually a much truer model to life than a cash game, because in life you usually can't just you know rebuy or reload or walk away or do this or do that, and it's also you know the dynamics, the 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 human drama is much. Higher in a tournament because it does have this progression. In in my book, um, I I make the analogy that tournaments are like Shakespeare. Um, you know, like the Shakespearean play. You're you're in Act three, and half the cast is already dead. Um, yeah. <laughs> whereas whereas cash games are much more war and peace. You're already read two thousand pages of the damn thing, and you still don't know what in the world is going to happen. <laughs> so, um, I I, uh, I reveal some of my biases. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I uh, so to me it was a no-brainer um, that I was going to that I was going to be a tournament player and I do love tournaments I think it was absolutely the right call I have since started playing cash as well because I think it teaches you a lot of things um, that you can use in tournaments but mm-hmm. in my heart I will always be a tournament player
1: yeah, there's so many components to, you know, the analogies that you're talking about with life and with game theory. And also these um, sort of, I don't know, there's something to me, I like that's slightly more responsible about regularly playing turn. If you're going to be regularly playing poker, you know, I had a weekly game with some friends. And so having a weekly tournament felt Somewhat more responsible than having a weekly cash game because then anybody who really does have an issue with gambling or anybody who really, I don't know, was having a, a harder week or whatever, I, I didn't feel as guilty. Like I didn't need to be concerned about either taking their money or putting my money on the table because I knew you come to play with X dollars that's your stake. That's it. Like you're not going to lose more than that. And there's kind of like a, a friendly comfort in that to me. Yeah. I actually think that there's a lot to that.
2: Um, and, and I do think that it's something that we do need to be aware of. I mean, I think that to me, it's, it's very clear. And I think one of the main things that I, that I try to stress over and over and and make a case for in the book is that poker isn't actually gambling, um, that it is Mm -hmm. a game of skill. Um, and I think there's a very, it's, very easy to to prove that. I mean, you can win with the worst hand, and you can lose with the best hand. That's it.
1: <laughs> so, and also, so that, also by the way, there's no house. Like, they may no, take a no rake, so, no. but there's no house. So that's there's the no biggest house. thing for me. You're playing so against other people. You not the are, casino. and it is,
2: and it is a skill game. Um, ultimately, mm. it un- it's unlike any other game in a casino. Uh, everything else in a casino is gambling. Poker is not. Yeah, but yeah. that said, Agreed. I mean, it, there are people who don't approach it that way because they were never taught to play correctly. They're not people who are there for the process. They're people who are like, "Ooh, let's gamble. And you can just like you can gamble on anything. You can gamble in any environment and you can, of course, gamble at poker. And I do have there. There is a part of my book where I go to Macau and confront kind of the, the really dark underbelly of the gambling world and mm. really hate it. I mean, I hate Macau, um, but there mm. is a dark side to it. There are people who have... No addictions and poker can play into that, but I so I do think that we need to be aware of it and try to be responsible about it. And then, yes, I do think that tournaments are are a little bit of a protective factor because in a cash game there's no bottom. You can theoretically right. buy in for more and more and more and more um, until you run out of money or run out of creditors. And in tournaments, well, I guess you can theoretically keep buying into new and new tournaments, but but I think that your, your approach definitely makes sense to me. And this is it this is very funny. I mean, go, going from uh, addiction to to saying what I'm about to say, but it's actually one of the reasons why I think that poker should be taught to children. Um, mm-hmm. Not I, so yeah. I think that there are lots of reasons for it. Once it teaches you critical thinking skills, it teaches you to think probabilistically, it teaches you statistics in a way that nothing else does. And I had a p like I said, I have a psychology PhD. This is what I studied. No real world environment actually teaches you to think probabilistically the way that poker does, because poker forces you to sample these things correctly. So that is such a huge win if kids can actually understand, you know, what 70% is, what seventy-five percent is, what it means to to make it decisions under uncertainty, what all of these elements mean. That's an insanely powerful thing. I also think that it teaches them self-control and emotional regulation and, te- and reading people and all sorts of things that are going to be so powerful later in life. So those are the skills it teaches them. But it also teaches them, if you're teaching poker to children you get to set the parameters for how they learn and so right. you get to under, you get to show them the difference between process and outcome if you get them to appreciate that to appreciate the beauty of the game and to focus on the process then they don't focus on the outcome so for them they don't even they can't see it as gambling because they realize that it's not about that end result. It's about the thinking and the process. And so I think it will actually prevent a lot of problems later on in life, where people were never really taught poker, just walk into a casino and are like, Oh, huh? let's sit down and gamble, which is where I think a lot of the problems arise.
1: Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I'm so reminded. During the pandemic, I completely rewatched Start to Finish the Wire. And I'm reminded of when when Mr. Prezbaluski was teaching in the school and like the kids were like not getting the math. And so he started teaching dice and they started learning cards and things like that. And of course, you know, cards and dice have always been a tool usually at the college level, maybe not at like the middle school level. Um, But they should be to learn, you know, probability and to learn statistics. But taking it to that extra level with poker, which is not just about the math and it's not just about calculating odds and it's not just about understanding whether or not, you know, you're committed to a pot or whether or not, you know, you know, counting your, your bet versus what's in the pot. But these bigger questions, like you said about like emotional regulation about keeping, not just keeping your cool under pressure, but not going on tilt and not becoming personally angry at somebody because they sucked out on you on the river, you know, because they just happen to have a really good hand, not wanting to get in a fight with them. Cause I've actually seen, some pretty amazing interpersonal issues at a poker table before. I mean, that's like a talk about a microcosm of life. You're so right. There's so many layers to it. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I, I,
2: what you said really resonates with me because I came to poker not really knowing what to expect. I mean, I knew it was going to teach me, you know, some of the game theory stuff, right? That's mm-hmm. that's what brought me to it. But I didn't realize that it was going to be like a therapy session on steroids because right. <laughs> you're under so much pressure and making you have to think clearly for so long and it gets emotional. And so all your issues come out at the poker table. All the shit you're carrying with you, it's going to come out at some point, it's going to erupt. And if you don't deal with it, it's going to affect how you play. And Mm -hmm. so it forces you to confront a lot of your issues. And it forces you to do so because in life, you can usually ignore it even if you kind of know, but you don't really have to know because you never are forced to. In poker, it's affecting your bottom line. You're losing money. You're very incentivized to fix it and to actually pay attention to it. Because if you don't, you're going to be a losing player. And so the, the fact that you get this very direct feedback and that the feedback actually plays into your wallet um it's such a powerful learning mechanism and so all of a sudden you know maybe i knew i had some of these issues a lot of them i wasn't even aware of but maybe i knew about some of them and yet i was never really motivated to do anything about it and that's why i said therapy on steroids because you can't keep coming back to the therapist week after week after week you've got to deal with it you've got to talk right. through the issue and figure out how do i Remedy it? What do I do in the moment? So I'm not the person having the blow up. So I'm not the person everyone is looking at thinking, oh boy, here (laughs) she goes again.
1: Oh my gosh. It's so, it's, it's such, I'm so glad that this was what you tackled. I mean, I think it's so much deeper too than the headline, which anybody who has been following your, your work for several years or who happened to um, luckily enough come across the headlines when you were playing in these professional events and continue to do so. But when you first started making headlines with this, I think for them, the top line is, you know, science journalist goes to learn about poker ends up becoming a pro poker player. Look how cool that is. And there is something very cool about that. I mean, that must have been so freaking exciting for you. But I'm so glad that the book is so much more than that. I mean, there is this, um, you know, this autobiographical component to it, of course, where it's like your kind of hero journey in the game. But I think so much more than that is like, What the game is and how it translates into these very real psychological principles, into these very important um, aspects of living that we should all be learning from right now because we are in the midst of basically the clusterfuck of all clusterfucks that is the exemplar of the many very key important people not heeding these lessons.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, I've been asked now a, a few times about how it feels to be releasing a book right now. And obviously, mm-hmm. it's not ideal. Like if I, if I were planning a book release, I would say I would not say, hmm, All right, let's, let's, Throw in a pandemic um, and,
1: you know, not do any in-person events. That'd be fun.
2: No in-person events. Um, Let's also throw in, you know, a a reckoning, a racial reckoning, a social Mm. reckoning in this country. Let's throw in an economic crisis and, you know, let's do, let's do all of these things um, at once. And I think that'll be a great fun time to release a book. Obviously, obviously no. But one of the big themes of the book is that, All you can focus on is the process and then the cards are going to come how the cards are going to come and that's not within your control and you have to learn to be okay with that. You have to learn how to be okay with uncertainty. You have to learn how to be okay with incomplete information, with a changing landscape, with not knowing and you have to be willing to adjust your decision to change what you're doing, to change your strategy as the environment changes, as new information changes changes as new cards come on the board and the texture of the board changes. And in order to even play the hand, you need to understand statistics. You need to understand (laughs) what that actually means. And in some ways, I mean, my book is so much about the present moment, and about what's happening and about how to wrap our mind around covid and around all of these different things and around what we can do it's actually it
0: helps si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca asma diabetes y tienes 19 años o más 52 36 42 Puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica.
2: I think, regain agency and be okay with the fact, I mean, you you can never truly be okay with it, but at least make your peace with the unknown and with with the fact that there are all these forces that are so much bigger than us. And so what we can do is be good statisticians, understand what's going on and make good individual choices, like wear a fucking mask. Um, sorry, I had to throw that in there.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's so true. And I think it resonates so much with me. I'm not sure if you know, because it's been a while since we last hung out, but I, um, I decided to go back to school three years. Actually, I'm about to start my fourth year in my PhD program. So I'm finally getting that psychology degree, but I'm studying, um, clinical psych. So I'm working towards licensure at the end of this. And my, um, my sort of specialty or my orientation within clinical psych is existential humanistic psychotherapy. And so many of these themes that you're talking about resonate so deeply with me, these ideas of kind of like suffering and experiencing these deep existential issues in life that are universal, but um, many of us don't learn how to cope with... um, I guess one of the things I often talk about is ambivalence, right? Like that things can be happening that are both good and bad, or things can be happening that are both exciting and frustrating, or whatever the case may be, it's complicated. There's gray area, there's nuance, and a big part of psychotherapy. But also I think a big part of learning how to navigate the world and a big part of playing poker is is that you have to be okay with the – Kind of ebb and flow and constant flux, and the discomfort that comes along with that. And sort of, you know, this, these are why these are reasons that I'm very interested in meditation and I'm very interested in mindfulness because it's this giving in in a way to allowing yourself to be bathed in your own experience or your own suffering and make meaning and sense of it, as opposed to fighting against it so much, which I think allows you to find real equanimity and real peace. And in some ways, I think makes you a better poker player.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's this constant feedback loop between poker and life because I think Mm -hmm. that you bring – so as a psychologist, I was able to bring a lot of tools to poker that made me a better poker player. But then playing poker actually – I think made me a better person and made me better at life. Um, and it's so funny because my first book, Mastermind, it was about Sherlock Holmes, but really it was about mindfulness. Back before mindfulness was a buzzword. I mean, that Mm -hmm. was the that was the main theme of it, about kind of learning to be present and learning to be kind of in the moment. And it's so funny because I do, I do yoga every morning and I meditate. Um, but one of the most meditative things I've done is play poker and it's so I mean it sounds so strange to say that but I was actually able to find kind of some sense of zen at the poker table out of this very very measured and very conscious attention that that you have to that you have to exude if you're going to really take in everything and really immerse yourself in the game and in the experience. And I think that it's actually fed back in and made me able to pay attention and be more mindful, be more present in everyday life as well. And so it's this, it's this fascinating constant back and forth. And yes, I, I think it's such a powerful lesson, as is mindfulness, as is all of these things. It's a powerful lesson in letting go mm-hmm. and, and yeah. just... In not just in maximizing control. Absolutely. So this isn't like a call against free will, um, which a lot of people think it might be. They're like, oh, well, you know, if, if chance is so huge, and if then I don't need to make any decisions and exactly. I, I, I can should do anything. Carry. By the river. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, it's actually it's, it's a call to action to exercise mm. as much agency as you can over the things that you have agency over, because there's so much more that you don't control. So you have to really maximize what you can, and then be okay with those other elements. Making peace with the other elements doesn't mean Stop making choices and give up your agency where you don't need to give up your agency. Those are two very different things, and I think they go hand in hand. You can become, you can become a bigger force for you know for 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 your own mind, for your own decisions, for your own con- self control and emotional um, balance, and all of these different things. All the while you acknowledge that, okay, there are these bigger forces that I can't do anything about and that's okay. That doesn't actually mean that I don't matter. It doesn't mean that my choices don't matter. These two things can coexist.
1: Oh my gosh. It's so, I mean, as you're saying that I'm just reminded of how much my mantra throughout, and it never was as a child or even I think as a mature adult, but as I've found myself more kind of um, deeply involved in reading psychology and philosophy literature and also actually seeing patients and working with individuals. You know, my last um, placement for training was an inpatient, not really inpatient, but a residential center for Girls with um, like severe complex trauma. So, a lot of these kids had like long, um, unho- unfortunate uh, histories being victims of sexual assault and physical assault. And obviously, they were. The- Struggling with a lack of agency during like these really formative years. And one of the th- themes that I went back to over and over with them, but also in my own life, is the serenity prayer, which is funny because I'm not religious. So I always take right. the God part out of it. Like I don't believe in God. But once you take the like God grant me thing off sure. the top, it's exactly what we're talking about. It's about you know, doing what you can within when you can do things, um, giving in or at least finding equanimity when you can't. But then the important thing, the part that a lot of people forget is the wisdom to know the difference, which is so hard. So often in life, we'd want to swim upstream when it's not that efficient to do so. And we refuse to let the stream carry us when it's direction we want to go anyway. And finding that balance, that's that is a poker tournament right there. But it also is soup to nuts what it is to be alive.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um yeah, that that's it's it's such an important it's such an important lesson. And yes, being able to tell the difference. And that's why poker is such a beautiful teaching tool, because it takes away a lot of the noise. In life, it's really difficult to learn a lot of these things, because you can always, you know, blame something for bad things, and you can always take credit for good things. And you don't actually ever have to really learn to spot the difference, because there's enough noise, there's enough other stuff that, that there's always something else. Poker is a game, it's simplified, which is wonderful some people say oh it can't be a good metaphor for life because it's just a game no it's, it's actually, a complicated game but yeah <laughs> it's a, right it's a complicated <laughs> yeah. game but it's also it's a it's a game and so there are rules and you are in a closed environment and mm. so you can actually figure out okay what am i controlling all right well I don't and what don't I control here's what I don't control the cards that I'm dealt at the beginning, I didn't control. Neither did anyone else at the table. And I don't control any of their cards. And neither did they. So so if they mm-hmm. said, you know, if I just got dealt kings, and someone else got dealt aces, and I don't know about that, that's nobody's fault. That's just how the cards that was just random chance. And I can't blame them for it. And I can't blame myself. And that was that was something I couldn't control. I can't control the next cards that are coming out, right? What the flop is or the turn or the river. For people who don't play card, uh, poker, those are just the community cards, the face up cards. So I can't control that. Okay. Well, then what can I control? Well, I can control what I choose to do. I can control my actions. You know, how do I play these cards? What do I, what strategy do I use? And there are lots of things within that that I can, that I can control. I can control what I'm paying attention to. What information am I actually taking in and using to make my decisions? What am I looking at? Who am I looking at? What am I noticing? What am I discounting? These are things I control. I control my emotions. I control how I react to certain things. I control how I react to certain people or to certain things happening or to certain cards coming out. That's that's what I'm controlling. The cards, that's the external stuff that I don't control. Now, let me take this away from the poker table. Let me try to figure out the analogs. Let me try to figure out, you know, how do I find that stuff in real life? I think there's a There's a real stoic philosopher aspect to poker and learning to identify the things that we do control, learning to identify the things that are within us to change. And then the rest of it, dismissing and realizing, okay, you know, that's, that's not something I have anything to do with. So I think there's, there's a lot of stoicism in there. um, And I think that that's a really powerful way of making better decisions and just leading a better life. Because you also, I think this is something that you were also saying, that mental framing is so important. What do you choose to highlight? What do you choose not to focus on? I think poker can make you much more emotionally resilient, much more able to cope with bad beats that life throws at you, with the stuff that's that goes against you that you had nothing to do with, I think. Poker gives you the tools to reframe it, to move on and to figure out how do I grow from that? How do I learn from the failure to become a better decision maker and to put myself in a position to get lucky the next time?
1: right like there are those experiences you know and i'm trying i've been trying not to use too much like insider lingo um even though i want to like dive into all these like specific examples but i feel like one hour podcast is maybe not enough time to learn the entire lexicon of poker um, but one thing that can happen at the poker table is that somebody will suck out on you like on the river card so it basically means they were their odds of winning were way lower than yours so you've been betting appropriately you you feel like you you are in a much stronger position to win. And then they pull out, let's say, the one card they would need to beat you, which is like statistically improbable, but it happens. And so when that happens, what I love about like a good suck out is that, You're allowed to experience it. You know, people stand up and they go, ah, and everybody in the room, if you're playing in a, in, you know, a public forum, um, or even if you're playing in a small home game is like laughing or like screaming, oh my God. And there's all this emotional kind of experience around it. And then you, get past it, and then you move on and you play the next hand and you try not to play on tilt, which means you try not to make stupid decisions because you're like emotionally still kind of distraught. And I like that because like you mentioned, it's about developing that kind of resilience, but it's also about allowing yourself to feel and allowing yourself to feel passionate um, when when it kind of is emotionally and psychologically um, important to you. And then learning from it and continuing on your journey. Like, there's just so many of those parallels that I think are are really important. And and one that I really wanted to highlight, because um, I was like, okay, we should get into some of the technical game. And also, I want to talk a little bit about your autobiographical experience. Um, although, of course, these are things people are going to gather when they read the books. I know they will. Um but anyway, one thing that I wanted to talk about is this concept and hopefully this doesn't require too much poker background of quote unquote beginner's luck because this is something I hear all the time. I'll play with a friend who never plays and they'll, you know, be in the money the first and only time they played and and they're like, "Well, beginner's luck, beginner's luck." And I'm like, "Yes, there is some luck to it, but also beginners make weird decisions because they don't really understand the rules of the game, so they find themselves in hands that seasoned players would never have been in to begin with. And then it's like strange things happen where they're able to pick up hands and and everybody's like, why are you even there? How could you bet that much? So there is this really interesting kind of kink in the game theory cog or the game theory, you know, conversation about what happens when somebody's not playing the game the way everybody else is playing it that really changes the the dynamic doesn't it yeah so i'm gonna
2: say two things okay one I actually don't think that there is beginner's luck because okay, good, I, okay, interesting. Because I, mean,
1: I think <laughs> actually, but I didn't want to go that far <laughs>
2: <laughs> because because I think that I think that what we're seeing is a memory bias, right? You remember Absolutely. all the cases when when the beginner um, cashed in their first and only tournament, but ninety nine of them didn't. We don't even know about them because they didn't cash, right?
1: right. They, we don't they, even know they, their they, names. We so don't even know whatever. Who they were.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, so there's a huge, huge memory and hindsight bias there. Um, Secondly, there's a chapter in my book where, so my, my main coach was Eric Seidel, but someone else I worked with and still work with a lot is Phil Galifond, who's another Mm -hmm. just brilliant player. And there's, there's a chapter devoted to, to the Phil philosophy where he was really trying to teach me um, at the early stages of my journey how to how to approach a lot of different decisions. And one of the things he said was exactly what you were saying, that, well, a lot of times people will rail and say, you know, I can't play against bad players. Um, I have no idea what they're going to be doing. And, and they get very annoyed and they say, well, um, you know, I... I, I can't win here. There's, there's nothing I can do. Um, yeah. Like they're not bad. playing the right way. Exactly. Why not? Exactly. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's a joke in poker. I'm going to move up in stakes to where they respect my raises. And it's right. <laughs> joke, but, but actually some people do that. Um, and it's wrong because if you, if you aren't winning, you should not be moving up in stakes. However, so what Phil told me was that even bad players have a reason for what they do. What your goal needs to be is to figure out what that reason is. And once you figure it out, you can play against them. Everyone has a motivation behind that decision. And for someone who is a beginner who doesn't know what they're doing, it might just be something like, oh, well, you know, I just want to see the next card. I'm interested. I'm not quite sure what to do. So I'm just going to call. Calling is in some ways like the, the easiest thing to do. Once you figure out what they're doing, you can play against them all of a sudden you understand why they find themselves in certain spots because getting mad at them is not the answer. Getting mad and railing and getting annoyed, that's not going to help you. What you need to figure out is how can I help myself? How can I actually take advantage of the situation? You want bad players at your table because, yes. <laughs> because ultimately you will take their money. And your goal is always to ask why. And this this was such an important lesson that he taught me because it wasn't just about other players. It was also about yourself. So Phil Mm. also taught me, you always have to ask why you're doing something. Always know the reason. And that's so helpful because it prevents you from just taking reflexive actions just because you want to or just because it's what you always do or or whatever it is. It or because per- you think it's what you're
1: supposed to do regardless exactly, of the thing. Exactly. That's not a
2: good reason. Yeah. And and it's so important to know that. And it's that's something that I've really taken away from poker. Always ask why. Because everyone it helps you not be judgmental. It helps you realize that everyone is motivated by something. It helps you really see
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: The world from other people's perspective, which is another hugely important thing that poker teaches you, because that's what you need to try to learn how to do if you're going to be a good player. Figure out what other people are thinking.
1: Right it does it I I continue to see these parallels with my own journey learning how to be a good psychotherapist is like you know one of the things that you learn really early on is that therapy is not just about telling people insight you know everybody thinks that's what it is like oh if I go to therapy my therapist will like give me insight and it's like I can't give you insight I can't be like You're with the wrong guy. He's hurting you. You should leave. (laughs) Like, how many times have you heard that? A million times, right? You have to come to your own insight. And a big part of being a therapist is understanding why people find themselves in similar positions over and over or understanding why they make the decisions they make, even if they don't seem rational to me or you or literally anybody else in their lives, there is an intrinsic motivation. And sometimes it's really powerful, like like overwhelmingly powerful. And of course you see that at the poker table. I think one of the best examples that I often think of, um, and I'm wondering how much you use this in your book, um, is the idea of folding a pair of pocket aces. So, you know, they're good hands in poker and they're bad hands in poker, but they are only meaningful insofar as how they kind of fit with the board so in in hold'em you know there's you you get dealt two hands and ultimately by the end of all the betting rounds they're three face up or sorry you get dealt two cards they're three face up cards or five face up cards sorry and so you're playing with the best five out of the seven um pocket aces right undeniably is the best hand in poker like you have the best odds with it but it doesn't mean it holds like we talk about crashing aces all the time
2: yeah, so pocket aces is the best hand pre-flop. So you have there to understand you go. Yeah. that the value of your hand is only as good as the environment. So absent any other information, pocket aces is by far the best hand. However, as more cards come out, the information changes. And what you need to realize is that first of all, even pocket aces, if you're against one player they're only about 75%, give or take, to win. Mm -hmm. As the pot becomes more multi-way, which means as more people are in it, even pre-flop, your odds go down. With three people, with four people, all of a sudden you can be as low as 60% because now you're no longer against two cards. You're now against... You know, six, eight, whatever cards. Um, little free strategy advice. This is why you do not limp pocket aces. A lot of people mm-hmm. love to trap with them. Do not do that. You do not want a multi-way pot. Anyway, that's for the <laughs> out there. get people out. <laughs> get people out. <laughs> um, but as the environment changes, you need to realize that they are just two cards. And right. it's so easy to make the mistake of holding on to your pocket aces and thinking, well, but I have pocket aces and being unable to fold. And the art of the fold, being able to find those folds, that's what makes great players. It's, mm-hmm. it's the, it's the situations where you know that you're probably beat and, that you're willing to let go of any two cards. That's why it's also better to not be a nit, which is a tight player who only plays really good hands, because that makes it harder to let go. If you're only playing, you know, 5% of hands, you're only playing pocket aces and pocket kings and pocket queens, maybe pocket jacks, you know, a few a few different things like that. Um, and all of a sudden, and so you're sitting for hours not playing and then you get your pocket aces then you don't want to fold because you're like, well, I finally have a good hand. I want to get paid. You're not going to get paid. That's why it's actually beneficial to learn that there are different types of hands that you can play and that playing more of them can be a huge advantage because that way you realize, you know, it's just a pair, a pair is just a pair. And you know what beats a pair? A set beats a pair. Do you know what else beats at a straight? Do you know what else beats at a full house? Do you know what you know? Do you know what else beats at two pair? There's so many many things beat a pair, and so you need to be conscious of the environment, and you need to be willing to take feedback from the environment, even if it's feedback you don't want to listen to. By the way, this has nothing to do with poker now, and (laughs) you need to be willing to realize that even if you've already invested money in in the pot and you put in a ton of money pre-flop because you had pocket aces, sunk cost fallacy. You will never get that money back. So do not put good money after bad. People... Make this mistake in investing all the time where they, yeah, they say they're pot committed. Exactly. Yeah. People make this mistake in relationships all the time. And they say, oh, well, I've already been with this person for two years. Might as well move in together, even though I'm miserable because I've already put in that amount of time. The sunk cost fallacy is really, really bad. And we do it all the time. And it's something that you really need to get out of your system and realize that it doesn't matter how much money, how much time, how much energy. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past because you can't change that. This brings it full circle to what we've been talking about this whole time. What can you control
0: mm-hmm. right now?
2: What you do mm-hmm. now and the kind of the the actions that you take going forward. You can no longer control what you already did. That's past. So at least try to make the best decision now with the information you have.
1: Right. And that's what resiliency is. It's about learning from all those things that happened and moving forward, armed with new knowledge and, and you know, a new ability to kind of ebb with that. And I mean, this this conversation about the sunk cost fallacy, about being able to fold your aces, it's so important for two reasons. Like you said, A, it's about, you know, you don't want to be a knit. You don't want to be one of these people who always only, you play super tight, but you only play really good hands because... Um, sometimes you'll wake up with ACEs and then they'll get cracked and you can't fold them because it's just too psychologically difficult for you. But on the flip side of that, people will always fold to you. And that's something that's so important as well. That kind of decision making for yourself affects your own, you know, outcomes in life, but it also affects how other people approach you. And so if you're somebody who cannot fold your aces, or if you're somebody who only ever bets when you have a good hand, people are going to get quick to that. And then they're going to manipulate you and take advantage of you. And all of a sudden, now you're seeing how it goes both ways.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what is so important to remember. Nothing in life or in poker is one way. It's all interactive. People, just like you're reacting to people, people are reacting to you. You have to be aware not just what information you're taking in, but what information you're giving off. What's your image? How do people see you? How are they adjusting to you? And where are they wrong? How can you actually take advantage of it? How can you use it to to your benefit. And Mm. it's so easy to forget and to to remain egocentric. And to forget that, you know, how you see yourself isn't how other people see you. And how you see other people isn't how they see themselves. Try to figure out what all of those disconnects are. That's, what's going to make you better at life. (laughs) And at poker, of course.
1: Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Maria. So many lessons, so much interesting stuff. Um, I, I before we, you know, before we close up with the last two questions, I, I feel bad because I feel like probably every other interview you've done started with a conversation about how you got to the place that you are. How did you get to be sitting in Jersey during a global pandemic, playing in the World Series? Um, you know, so I wanted to have sort of a quick and dirty for people who, you know, just need a little taste before they buy the yeah. book about the that process, sort of that autobiographical process, of I wanted to write a book about luck, and now all of a sudden I've been lucky or I've been skilled enough right. to find myself in this place.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, lucky I got one of the best players in the world to agree to take me on. And he introduced me to a lot of the other best players who have all helped me and become good friends and have been just so remarkably generous with their time throughout this whole process. So, I definitely had access to some of the best poker minds in the world, which accelerated my learning process. And I worked hard. I mean, I left the New Yorker to do this full-time, to Mm -hmm. actually focus on learning poker full-time. So, for... While When I started out, I spent seven days a week, um, eight, nine, ten hours a day, either studying or playing or reviewing, basically living and breathing poker. So I did work very hard, but I also got very lucky. Um, I ended up winning a major international title, um, and I could have very easily not, because as we've already talked about, when it comes to any one tournament, it's very easy to... You, well, not very easy. You have to be skilled, but you also have to get very lucky. And right. if I hadn't won, my I, th- I think my story would have been very different. No one cares about second place. Um, but winning, <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> winning got all of this media attention and got me a sponsorship from Poker Stars. So I joined Team Pro. And that gave me the opportunity to do this really seriously full time for another year to travel around the world to play in all these tournaments and i wanted to keep playing because i wanted to prove to myself that it wasn't a one time thing that i actually had learned something and that my skill had gotten up to a certain level and so and i did prove that to myself i ended up making Multiple other final tables around the world, um, had multiple second place finishes, no more big wins. Um, but I, I think I showed myself that I really had learned something. That said, I had also gotten very lucky along the way. And the book is, the book does not end with my victory because that would be a fake ending. Um, right. and, and there's a lot to the journey that's, that's still to come after that big media moment.
1: And so what about now? I mean, you know, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, a lot of political unrest. You're, you know, you can't play in person now. You obviously... Are a writer and have always been a writer and will always be a writer. You do have your PhD in psychology. You know wh- what's next for you? Are you a pro poker player from here on out? Is it a kind of a hybrid career where you, you know, write and supplement your income and 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 your kind of like psychological stealth by playing poker? Like, wh- what do you want to do next? who knows who knows one <laughs> of the things that i'm
2: focusing on right now is just taking it one day at a time i think right. the current situation has has shown us more clearly than anything else that you know you can't predict the future i mean that's why it's the future and there are just so many things happening right now that we just we don't know what the world's going to look like and i've really one of the things i've taken from this journey is that you also you don't know how your future is going to look you don't know what your career is going to look like just i'm be open minded and remain focused on the present and see what you can do now. So right now I'm focused on the book getting it out in the world and doing everything i can to support it um and so i'm always going to be a writer first and foremost but that said i love poker and i still think it has a lot to teach me so i see myself as continuing to play um we'll see on what level um inter- and how much time i'm willing to devote to it because i am a live player so i'm here playing online and you know it's it's fine but it's not what i love and it's not where my biggest edge is and so i think that um, we'll just see what happens in the world and we'll see what's, what's next for me um, one step at a time. But there's no incompatibility between writing and playing poker. You can do both all over the world. So at least as of now, I have no plans to stop playing and I've never had any plans to stop writing. I mean, that's what I'm going to be doing till my dying day.
1: Yay. OK, so I have to ask then, um, will you... If you find yourself in LA when the pandemic has um, moved to a place where it's you know safe to be in person again, will you come play at my table sometime? I would absolutely love to. It would be Yay. an honor. <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. Okay, so Maria, before we go, you know, I close my podcast. You probably forgot this because it's been so long, but I close each episode by asking my guests the same two questions. I should dig up your old episode and compare oh, no. your answers after the fact. <laughs> but hey, I'll, it'll all be hindsight bias because I don't know what you said. I can't remember. So like we, we, we can't prime ourselves with that. Um, so big picture questions and they're about the future, right? which is hard because we're taking it one day at a time. (laughs) But when you look to the future and whatever context is relevant to you right now in your life, Number one, what is the thing you're most concerned about, most worried, maybe pessimistic, maybe even cynical about? What's keeping you up the most at night? Oh, and my on the God. Side, <laughs> right? What are, you, what are you excited and optimistic and looking forward to?
2: I mean, everything is keeping me up at night right now, honestly. It's, <laughs> right, it's I know. So it's like hard the worst question. <laughs> it's so hard to sleep. I mean, obviously, you know, humanity is keeping me up at night. We everything that's happening in the world and in the United States, I'm just, I'm so dispirited. And the thing that really scares me, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to get political is that we might still end up reelecting Donald Trump. And that just, that makes me want to cry because so many of the things that I'm worried about, I mean, I'm worried about our social structure, our safety net, just basic human rights and people being treated as people. Um, I'm worried about, bigger things like global warming um, and all of these things are being undermined by the current idiot in chief that we have. Yep. And and he's bringing out the worst in so many people. And I think that, that that really scares me. And the fact that we might be facing a second term, I don't know if our democracy will survive and how. Um, I don't know what the future will, will look like. And that's just really it's it makes me want to cry right now. Um and I think that there's a very good chance of it. And anyone who says he's never gonna win re-election, I think doesn't know what they're talking about. Um oh
1: we all said the same thing at the beginning. Like exactly. we've, got to, yeah, we've got to stop being so naive about this. Exactly and start- one of the things that the
2: confidence game, my book about con artists taught me is that don't believe what you want to believe. Because that's how you get conned. Um, Be be willing to believe the things that you really don't want to believe, and try to kind of confront those bad versions. And that's that's what's keeping me up. What makes me optimistic? um, People like Greta Thunberg. (laughs) The fact that we do have, you know, some a younger generation that seems, you know, the the marches, the protests. I um, am in. Normally, I'm in Brooklyn, and a lot of the protests were happening in my neighborhood. And that makes me optimistic um, that people are getting together and that there is, there are movements out there and there are strong people willing to stand up for, for the good fight. Um, And I hope that, I hope that those voices won't get defeated, won't get frustrated, and I'll do everything I can um, to help amplify them on my end. Um, and I hope that ultimately, in the long term, they will succeed, even though in the short term, I'm despairing.
1: Here, here, everyone, Maria Konnikova, her book is The Biggest Bluff How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself and win. Thank you so much. This was so much fun.
2: It really was. I wish we could do this every week. It was like a therapy session and wonderful (laughs) friend reunion.
1: Yay. I know. I know. I know. I can't wait to see you in person when we can. I cannot wait to play poker with you. I'll make sure it's a low stakes game so I don't lose too much. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a great plan. So, thank you so much once thank again. Thank you and so much. Listening. Of course. Thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy.
0: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's
1: the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Haha, uh-huh, in my dentist's office.